everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going alright, thank you very much Ed. I'm back from a beautiful trip to Copenhagen where I got to see my cousin, first time face to face, tete a tete, since, you know, well, two, two and a bit years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obvious reasons. Um, and enjoying the burgeoning spring, if not the cost of living crisis, in this sorry excuse of uh, a collection of nations we call a country. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, Also, in terms of family visits, uh, my aunt came over to visit and stayed with my parents uh, for a couple of weeks, a few weeks back, then I went up for a few days and uh got to hang out with all of them which was very nice i haven't seen her uh since my grandmother's funeral which was a few years ago so it was nice to to meet up and go out for meals and things uh and under uh nicer circumstances and it was like it was quite a weird thing as well in terms of the the arc of the pandemic because me we all went out for a meal at a chinese restaurant near where i live um and whilst we were sitting there i was just thought oh it's been almost exactly two years to the day that me my parents and a different aunt went to that same chinese restaurant on the day that it was announced that like flights were about to be cancelled because of the pandemic when things were because they had come over my different aunt and uncle had come over to visit for like a week and were planning to fly back in like two days and then there was just a whole afternoon of hurried conversations on the phone of us trying to figure out if they needed to swap to an earlier flight if they'd be able to still keep their original one and it uh, it was like a nice opportunity to reflect on how far things have changed since the absolute panic that that period represented because that was you know immediately after that i was like just on complete lockdown for like two months or something where i just didn't leave the house at all except to get groceries so it was nice to kind of have gone, maybe not full circle, but I think, you know, at least like 300 degrees. Uh, you've, you've closed the seal and broken the curse. So thank you. <laughs> so uh, obviously we've been uh, off for a couple of weeks. So uh, this is just going to be an all news episode where we'll catch up on some of the big stories that have happened in the, the week or so since we last recorded. And uh, woof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get to that one. I guess first we should probably just talk a little bit about the Oscars because obviously uh, they happened in the in between time since we last recorded, and we'll talk about the thing that everyone talks about about that Oscars uh, later. But so let's just talk about the Oscars more generally. Emily, what what were your thoughts on on this year's Oscars, um, particularly in, you know the awards, but sort of just in general, what did you think of them? a mixed bag i felt like the sheen of it is really starting to fall away Mm. and to be (laughs) relentlessly me for a moment i do think that you can draw a parallel between 
the fashion and the kind of quality of the year. Mm-hmm. And before I even really looked up the winners, I looked at the red carpet and oh god, what a, what a weird and yet very reflective mixed bag. Like I think I also felt bitter because I felt very old because there were several people I just didn't recognize. Right. Why? 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 Why is this fourteen-year-old allowed at the Academy Awards? Mm-hmm. There were some really bizarre shapes and silhouettes going on, and only a few like real hits. Like I loved Billie Eilish's goth Barbie. Like it just looked so comfortable as well, and I really appreciate when people look comfortable at the Oscars because that can be a bit of a feat, but you are sitting down for a long time. And that was why seeing people who had, like, really big trains, as impressive as they look on the red carpet, just to be sitting down for, like, five hours. It's a really... It's a marathon event. There's a reason why a lot of stuff isn't broadcast on TV, you know? Um, So much red. So much red. And it's weird when only sort of one colour really starts to come through. It just Mm. felt at at the same time confused and also hack. So really disappointing. It it kind of felt like almost reassuring of seeing, oh, not to be two celebrities are just like us, but they've all forgotten how to do red carpet. This is the first (laughs) sort of big, you know... I think everyone's forgotten how to how to do fashion and to wear it. Just some really weird choices that didn't bring out the best in anyone, which I think is the overall statement of this year's Oscars. Mm. Yeah, I think for me, it it it. I think there was something quite shabby about the whole affair in aesthetics to an extent but also in attitude you know there was that whole thing where eight of the awards was show were handed out um before the broadcast and uh you could only see the speeches that the winners gave because i think it was kyle buchanan who i think uh, the he was an entertainment author uh, just wrote a book about the making of mad max fury road um he was there and he was like in the balcony filming it and posting the speeches on his Twitter feeds, so that was the only way you got to see a lot of these people who were winning a you know the award that represented the acme of their craft in some cases was if you happened to follow this person on Twitter or one of their videos got shared. And that immediately even before the ceremony had started, that kind of left a really bad taste in my mouth. And it also seemed really self-defeating because they're uh, logic for it was they said oh we need to cut these things because we want to shorten the ceremony and then the ceremony ran longer than last year's <laughs> so it kind of seemed like they didn't achieve their stated goal of making it a lean mean ceremony and also one of the other things they said was like you know there's all this hand-wringing around the oscars about whether or not they need to reward popular movies um to stay relevant and then i think of those eight Oscars that were given out before the ceremony, I think four or five of them went to Dune, which was like the biggest movie nominated for any of the major awards. So they didn't even showcase the awards they did give to a 
popular movie and everything about it just kind of felt so misguided and misfiring and like there was a there's kind of a self-loathing to the whole thing of like the people who are putting on this show don't want to make it for the people who would actually want to watch it yes um and so they just keep trying to appeal more and more to people who will never watch the oscars because they just don't have any interest in it and that just and it just seems to illustrate to me how you could have such a better show if you just didn't chase the ratings of of your you know like 20 years ago or something, the Oscars were getting 40 million viewers. Um, and then nowadays they struggle to get like 10 million viewers or something like that. And part of that is just that, you know, there's um, the sort of movies that make a lot of money now just aren't awards worthy. Yeah. Um, either in quality or just in terms of general demeanor. They're not the kind of movies that get made to win awards. They, they get made to make money. And that's what they're good at. And, but the other part of it is just that audiences for everything except like the super bowl have just plummeted for everything like sitcoms on network television don't get the meager ratings that like community did you know <laughs> like 10 years ago when community was constantly on the bubble now if you said it's, you know this sitcom gets about like three million views a week that's pretty that's a runaway success you know everything is fractured so much so like the there's such a sense of that 30 rock gag of like make it 1997 again by magic or whatever like that just seems to be the whole approach that the people behind the oscars seem to be trying to do is just think oh we need to do something to get up to the days when like 40 or 50 million people tune in to win to watch the oscars and that's just never going to happen again that's just not the way in which this stuff works completely they've not adjusted for digital inflation like, mm, yeah exactly it, it's just bizarre like they're they're duck at a time where they don't appreciate that their audience has diversified. It's weird where SNL is ahead of the Academy, but here we are. Mm, yeah, exactly. And I just think that there is a real I don't know, there's just there's just a real sense that whoever's producing the Oscars is just doesn't know what they need to do to make a good show or to make a popular show and they're trying to make a popular show and that's just not going to happen so maybe next year they should just try and make the best possible version of the oscars for the people who would actually want to watch the oscars um and part of me wonders if the only way that's going to happen is if disney no longer produce it and it no longer has to get like network ratings if they can just but if like youtube or someone steps in and says we'll produce the oscars and everyone can watch it on YouTube, and then ratings don't really matter, then you would get the version of the show that people might actually tune into who want to see, you know, people accept awards for the good work that they did. Um, but yeah, whether or not that will ever actually happen, uh, I guess is another matter. Uh, and then in terms of the actual winners, uh, I don't know, like the first reward that was given out was to uh, Adriana DeBose for West Side Story. And I was just like, yes, great. I'm happy with anything else that happens tonight. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the night did, did stretch that um, promise. Um, but um, I like I would I think even before, like weeks before the ceremony, I was just like saying, yeah, she's she's probably going to win. And I'd really like it because I think that that performance in that movie is absolutely stunning and i think that she absolutely deserved it 
Um, and then I think everything else. There was nothing that kind of really struck me as terrible. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of Coda, which I think kind of feels a little too like a TV movie that happens to have been nominated for an Oscar. Um, but I didn't have massive problems with it winning Best Picture. Um, I, although I think the producers would probably wish that they hadn't won this year because I think within days, even people who watched the Oscars would have not been able to tell you what film won Best Picture because yeah. uh, there was that was such a minor story of the night. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Ed. It feels... Um, it feels like a really bizarre year in that all of the proportions are really out of whack. Mm-hmm. Like, as we will come to it, one action sucked all of the attention away from absolutely everything else. Yeah. Which is wild, because even when Moonlight won and La La Land was accidentally announced, that didn't pull away from the rest of the evening. That was like, I mean, that is the moment that that, year's Oscars will go down for but other stuff mm. happened too and it just feels like the Academy talk, you know, apologising and talking about how to make it better and really going above and beyond um, in the next years to sort of bring things together on their side um, yeah it just yeah I'll, I'll leave the rest of my feelings for when we come to it <laughs> mm, yeah um, I just try to think of the other any other awards Riz Ahmed being an Oscar winner is cool mm-hmm. um, although again because that was one of the te- the eight that was given out before the ceremony no one got to see that happen so that was that's annoying that you know you don't get to see this young charismatic actor who's you know kind of very much on the up and was the star of a best picture nominee last year and was nominated for best actor last year wins an Oscar for best short film and then you know, doesn't get the chance to shine that um, he deserved. Uh, I think that was uh, a real shame. Um, and I was I was quite pleased to see Jessica Chastain win. I thought she was really good in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Mm. And she is someone who has been, has done very good work in the past and uh, I have always enjoyed as a performer. So like it was, it was nice to see her uh, get some, get, get, finally get an Oscar, even though I don't think, she would have been my pick of those nominees. Um, I still thought that, yeah, it was it was a deserved win on her part. Yeah, so I think we should probably get to the big thing because, uh, yeah, it's the thing that one when we were kind of like I was getting ready to kind of like prep this episode and was like listing the news stories. I was struck by a weird thing where I thought we wouldn't have to talk about the Oscars if we'd been off for a few weeks because they would not have been in the conversation. And then yesterday there was like the eighth next development in the Will Smith saga. And I was thinking, oh yeah, I guess we probably do have to talk about them because the story just won't die. So to recap for people who for some reason are not aware, um, on the Oscars night, uh, Chris Rock got on stage and was doing sort of some bits, you know, kind of making fun of people in the audience. At one point, he made fun of the fact that Jada Pinkett Smith has a shaved head, which is a result of alopecia. Um, Will Smith took uh, exception to that and walked up on stage and slapped him. And since then, that just seems to be the 
all anyone can talk about in terms of the Oscars, and it has been a a rolling series of news stories about, you know, should Will Smith, and discussion about, you know, should Will Smith apologise, should, you know, what action should be taken against him, and, you know, since then he has uh, resigned from the Academy, and the Academy uh, yesterday banned him from attending the Oscars for the next 10 years, and, yeah, it's just been an all-consuming news story that people seem to be trying to frame through whatever lens they want you know there they were like the, the day after there were just tons of bizarre takes about it that were trying to compare it to like putin invading ukraine and things like that like where everyone wants to reframe this one instance through like whatever lens they want in terms of our where we are as a society and yeah it's just been it's just bizarre just how big and how sustained this story has become and what the aftermath has continued to be you know more than two weeks out tell me about it so very quickly it was a terrible joke in that Mm. it was mean-spirited it was poking fun at someone's illness that they cannot help. And it was also just really outdated, not only in its tone, mm. but in its reference. It was like, what year is this? G.I. Jane was an all right movie last I checked. What, what, I don't, I don't get this, you know. Having said that, that kind of response is not warranted. Mm-hmm. It also really highlighted to me the change in venue or like structure, because as far as I'm aware, back in the Kodak theater, there's no way you'd be able to just walk up to the host. (laughs) It would, you know, someone would have been able to stop you Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. with, with the structure of that. So that was really odd. And then my little tin foil hat moment is that, we're all still talking about the Oscars weeks later. Yeah. Was this, you know, in some way manufactured? Unlikely, but it's a gift to the Oscars, even if Will Smith is now their prodigal, uh, their sacrificial lamb. It's really bizarre thinking of the full, like the sort of wider narrative of this and the history of the Pinkett Smiths and their being very prominent at the front running of the Oscars So White campaign mm-hmm. and boycotting it. And and then they're finally sort of given a seat at the table and this happens. And I think the reason why it's such a enduring, for whatever reason, cultural moment it's actually very rare to see real violence mm. and a flash of it and the way that the sort of narratives quite literally collided because you've got Will Smith working so hard, like so many steps in his career over the past like five or six years has, you know, they have all been such Oscar weighty roles. Mm. And to be taken seriously as an actor and that his personal life and particularly their marriage has been under a lot of scrutiny 
I think there's a huge amount of racism that's involved as well, like the way that their children are spoken about in a way that isn't similar to other kind of Hollywood nepotism. You know, it's there is an uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable sexualization of Willow, for example, that does not that, that is a racialized sexual element that doesn't happen as much with other sort of Hollywood family kids and with Chris Rock as well it kind of gave the wider sort of American comedy community exactly what it wanted which was another oh god we're so persecuted us comedians we're just telling the truth oh no mm. you know free speech but what if you get whacked in the face it's like oh it's just really poor form all round. Mm-hmm. No one comes out of this well. We are still talking about it because there's also this kind of fallacy around things like violence where we expect the goodies to come in and stop the baddies straight away. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been privy to violence in real life, people don't rush in. People are in shock. People aren't used to seeing the ramifications of this kind of thing and how you don't just rush in. Essentially, whether it's the correct course of action or not, people try and stay calm and come back to normality. Mm. So to watch that actually happen, but also bringing up various (laughs) issues of, the way that Hollywood treats its stars, it's below the line, it's dynamics. It's like, it's it's sort of seeing the crack in the very jewel of the crown, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all the things that everyone's just watching again and again and again. That's not the thing that they wanted to go viral. And, you know, sort of repercussions instead of, you know, it's like, what do you expect sort of him to get airlifted, you know, him to get sort of frog marched out for him not to get his Oscar and so he'll still get his Oscar but he's banned and he won't be able to come for 10 years and it's like what will happen to his career because the other thing that I found kind of galling is like you know Amy Schumer also did some very bad jokes and it's meant to be in in the same spirit of the White House Correspondents Dinner where it's like, oh, we can all laugh at ourselves. No, none of you can. Number one, none of you can write decent jokes about it. And number two, all of you take them so badly to heart because you're all just ego, barely contained by skin. Yeah, a room full of narcissists are not... Yeah. It's not the best audience for, for the jokes making fun of them. Yeah, it's awkward as hell. And also it's like narcissists making jokes about other narcissists whilst Mm. convincing themselves they're not narcissists because they're pointing out every other narcissist in the room. Um, But not in the mirror. And so Amy Schumer's joke's pretty bad. But she also shared that one of the jokes that the Oscars didn't allow her to say was um, don't look up, wasn't nominated. I, you know, that's not just the title of the film, it's what you say about not looking into down to Alec Baldwin's shotgun. Terrible uh, yeah, joke. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. it badly, but also it's just like I'm not someone who thinks that everything is sacred, but it's also like that's not that's not the joke that 
you know, because you can use satire to highlight why the film with someone who is still as renowned a name as Alec Baldwin starring and producing are basic safety measures being cut, you know, the, the emphasis on that joke is it was almost someone's fault for looking at the gun, whereas it's like, no, the joke needs to be about the complete lack of safety. Like, what, what, what are we fucking doing here? What are we doing here? Yes, yeah, like the difference between that joke and the legendary joke that Eddie Murphy said when asked if he would ever work with John Landis again. He said Vic Morrow has a better chance of working with John Landis again than I did, than I do. Which is very much like, it's a it's a joke about a horrible thing that happened and the three people died in, but it's a joke about you know the person who was responsible for that. Maybe not legally, but you know, yeah, yeah according to the courts. But but certainly in terms of like who's in charge of a film set and making sure that people don't die horribly, uh, directors probably got some responsibility there. Um, but yeah, like that they you know the target is very clearly that as opposed to like you say making it seem like the person who died was responsible for their own death and like not really honing the the satire to the, the proper point you know as that joke clearly didn't do yeah absolutely and it it's just um this continuing muddling that is actually quite murky and shady. It's not just confusion. It feels like desperation. Mm. And when you flood that desperation through, everyone starts to go a bit weird, to put it lightly. Everyone is desperate in that room. They're desperate to win. They're desperate to be seen. They're desperate not to be forgotten. Like you mentioned, Ed, the Oscars are just desperate to get people to view who would never view in the first place and you know it's like summer of soul one great (laughs) it's not all bad but i don't understand what it's there for anymore because again it's this idea of like if it's the occasion of the year for the american academy which globally is seen to be the entirety of the American film industry, which again, not entirely correct, but it is the view in. The idea that somehow it's also the moral arbiter (laughs) is kind of wild because that's not really what the Academy does. Mm. Um, But it's pretended that it, that it does and it's pretended that we're such a happy workplace and we're more like a family and it just feels like everyone's either willfully forgotten how to behave around people or they can't hold the mask up any longer to be nice to each other it's Mm -hmm. I, i think the oscars is still valuable as a cultural touch point as to where we are at the moment in American filmmaking and to, for better or worse, a greater extent, you know, world filmmaking or English speaking filmmaking. And what I can definitely say from this year is it's a hot mess. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I think the only 
final point I would make on it uh, is I feel it would be remiss me not to say which my what my original reaction was to the uh, when the slap occurred, which was to kind of laugh at it and think it was sort of funny. Yeah. It just kind of shocked, like, wow, this is not a thing that happens in the Oscars very often. Um, okay. And so I feel like the consequence of it that have since snowballed out has been has been a really weird thing to see. It's been very strange. Completely. It feels like it should be slapstick. But yeah. it's just slap, no stick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so in other news, uh, we've got a couple of more stories to rattle through. Ethan Cohen of the Cohen Brothers uh, is uh, striking out on his own and directing a movie. Um, obviously, Joel Cohen uh, directed his first solo feature last year with The Tragedy of Macbeth. And Ethan Cohen has announced that he is directing a movie of his own, uh, currently details for which are not widely known. They're keeping it very close to the chest but what they have said about it so far is that it's a lesbian road trip comedy and i'm just very excited to see what that manifests as benedetta 2 anyone (laughs) benedetta 2 on the road (laughs) but no i'm i'm very i'm very curious to see how this shakes out because i wasn't the biggest fan of the tragedy of Macbeth. I think it's it's gorgeously shot and the the stage design and everything is all very cool and the cast is very good, but you know, it's just like you know, like it's it's hard to think of a new thing to do with Macbeth. Yeah. And I'm I'm not necessarily sure that they figured out a really new thing to do with Macbeth. So there's there's like a ceiling to how good or impressive that movie was gonna be. Um but you know, it it was interesting to kind of look at it and wonder okay what how does this feel different to the movies that joel cohen made with his brother you know like trying to pass out the differences so i think this will be interesting to see what ends up happening with uh ethan's solo debut because i don't know if this is true um or if it's just like a mistaken sense that I always got, but the sense I always got was that Joel was the technician because he was the one who went to film school and that Ethan was kind of the slightly headier, more of the writer of the two because he obviously has a background in philosophy and writing plays and things like that. So I'm curious to see if there will be that clearer delineation, like will this movie be less visually distinctive but will it have more of kind of a loose fun feel to it you know obviously different genre but you know very different style of filmmaking um i i i am really excited to see what this separation ends up putting out into the world uh, and seeing which actors each of them get in the divorce (laughs) team ethan team joel I agree, I agree with you, Ed. I think the thing about Tragedy of Macbeth is that the one thing that I really liked was seeing an older Macbeth and Lady. Mm-hmm. That brought a lot of different stuff to me because I think previously in other adaptations, they've been, you know, quite young and there's, an, a, there's, a, there's a weight that's added to the sort of like last chance saloon-ness of it, mm. which, which I really liked. I feel like there's more stakes because you're like, yeah, I think this is your only shot. This is interesting, rather than like, oh, well, you'd be sort of scrapping for power anyway, because that's just where you're at in your 
life stage of a fame. A lesbian road trip comedy. Wouldn't it be great if it was like Euro Trip? Like he just <laughs> went all out and yeah, I mean, of course, in my mind that that feels like it should be a comedy. But what if it's not? <laughs> um it yeah, it it will be because cause in my mind, it, it, it's a bit like, well, one of them's the funny one and one of them's the serious one, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, Tragedy of Macbeth, it's in the title. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Spring break, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be, it'd be weird if that was what... Those are the kind of movies that Ethan was really into, like how Terrence Malick loves Zoolander. Oh, but who doesn't love Zoolander? Very true, very true. Orange mocha frappuccinos. <laughs> God, the the petrol station fight in in Zoolander. I just remember the first time watching that, just like watching it on TV randomly because it came on. I thought, oh, this is like a this is a, a Ben Stiller movie. Why not? I just I just remember me and my sister watching that and just falling about laughing with how much abandon they were throwing into yeah you know, the start of the fight and then when they start throwing out the throwing out the petrol on each other and then obviously I think Skarsgård is the one who ends up lighting his cigarette and just yeah god so many so many great moments so many great moments a tragic gasoline fight accident truly <laughs> In uh, in other news, um, oh, there's one more story. Uh, so yes, yeah, so we've got another two stories. Um, it was announced uh, a few days after the Oscars that um, Bruce Willis would be retiring from acting um, because he has been diagnosed with uh, aphasia, which is uh, kind of a degenerative condition that you know similar to dementia, where which affects speech and cognitive functions. And this was. Notable because I think there had been rumours for a while among around Hollywood that something was up with Bruce Willis, um, as reflected by some of his recent work, which has been typified by having sort of smallish roles in movies, or his characters would often have to have headsets, and so there was just a sense of like maybe something was not right. Uh, with Bruce Willis and it seems to have been the case that you know he has been uh, declining for a few years and you know he would struggle to remember lines so he'd have to be fed them by um, earpiece and ultimately I think this retirement was brought about by the fact that he fired a prop gun at one of his co-stars in a recent movie that he had made you know by by accident you know he had gotten confused and accidentally fired a prop gun fortunately it doesn't seem like anyone was hurt but you know they could have been and so um, it's obviously very sad. And also this came just a few weeks after the Razzies had given an award to Bruce Willis for like worst performance cumulative for like eight movies or something that he was in last year, which they have since rescinded because they, obviously it's a bad look now. But even at the time, I think a lot of people saw that and thought, this seems gross, um, particularly if people had heard the rumours. And so uh, as, and, and as, as some people pointed out, you know, I think... There is a tendency with news like this to try and eulogise the person as if they're dead, when obviously they aren't. Bruce Willis is still alive. 
and you don't, we don't want to make it seem like being diagnosed with asphasia is this is a death sentence or the disability is in any way prevents someone from living living life you know to the fullest that they're able to but because his career is functionally over i do think it's appropriate to kind of take this moment to think back on bruce willis's career because he was such a huge star for such a long time and he was such an important impactful star that um it's appropriate now that his his career is is functionally over to think back on some of the the best work that he did uh over you know the 30 odd years that he was a big star i agree his roles are iconic and you know not just die hard because of course i think that's what really broke him out as an action star having just Mm -hmm. been on tv and moonlighting and things like that but i think he has such a unique stage presence well screen presence sorry he has such a unique screen presence in that he is a really hench, admittedly, but like he's an everyman. Mm. Like he, how many sort of heroes did you see who were balding? You know, yeah. like I don't. I, I think um, you know <laughs> he walked so Vin Diesel could run. You know, um, <laughs> and yeah, I love him in Looper. He's um he's he's not necessarily one for a huge amount of range, but that I think is often valorized for you know it's what people say when they're not able to be as iconic as someone like Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a very unfortunate reason as to why he has to retire because I get the sense you know it's not that he would want to it's that. It's just not something that he can fully do um, safely anymore. It's very sad. Yeah. But yeah, I was, I was taken aback by how saddened I was by the news. So that's definitely something. Yeah, I think you're right in, in that he was so that that his everyman persona I think was so important for that early phase of his career. Particularly if you're looking at like Die Hard comes out in 1988, you're still in the hyper testosterone era of Arnie and and Stallone and Van Damme and all those sort of movies. So to have someone who is just like convincingly just a normal guy be put into the sort of situation that a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone would usually get put in adds so much to the appeal of Die Hard where you really can identify with John McClane as a character and also you know, he was so he was very funny. Yeah, you know, he's he's got such a f- good, wry sense of humor, which you really see in Die Hard. Um, he was very very funny. You know that arc he had on Friends. Oh yeah, uh, where he was dating Rachel for a bit, and it was very very funny. He's great in Fifth Element, um, a movie I've seen so many times because the BBC always seemed to air it for some reason. <laughs> um, but like again, that everyman persona I think was so crucial to that movie. Where you think, oh yeah, he's just like a taxi driver in the far future, and this woman has shown up who apparently is the embodiment of one of the elements. Cool. Okay, you could believe him as like a, just a normal guy thrown into completely absurd situations. 
Um, I think he's also the same year that he was so great in Looper. He was also wonderful in Moonrise Kingdom, um, in a supporting role, and that for me at the time I thought, oh, like maybe this is like going to be a renaissance for Bruce Willis, who he kind of felt had hit a slump in the mid two thousands where he didn't seem to be trying that hard anymore. Um, and sadly, that sort of never really manifested. Like, he didn't get cast in a bunch of really good parts off the back of those two movies and um, then, you know, kind of settled into a row of direct-to-DVD sort of, or direct-to-video stuff that he never quite got out of. Um, and it was, a, yeah, even before the aphasia diagnosis, like, it kind of seemed like a uh, sort of sad progression for his career considering what a great presence he was throughout the 80s and 90s and into the 80s and i also like sixth sense he's great in unbreakable i rewatched like last year and i thought he was absolutely incredible in unbreakable um 12 monkeys is an absolute favorite of mine yeah he's just he has probably at least like 10 or 12 movies under his belt that you would look at and say, oh yeah, these are like just absolute masterpieces. And he was always just like really, particularly during that kind of like 20 years or so between sort of Die Hard and uh, I guess uh, A Good Day to Die Hard. Um, or no, sorry, Live Through or Die Hard. Um, he was always like such a dependable, solid actor in everything they did. And yeah, it'll be gonna be a real shame that we're we're never going to see him in a movie again and that he's never he's probably not gonna ever have that resurgent moment that i feel like he he always deserved for sure he was in line for that for a really great comeback but he already has given us so much and i think i'm gonna re-watch death becomes her because mm. you mentioning his comic delivery I don't think you can get better at him at his sort of camp snivelling best there yeah yeah I think as well that is where the the balding part like really comes in is you you could believe him as like a total sad sack Mm -hmm. in a way that you know wouldn't work with a lot of action stars like he did you know just kind of believably look like any 30 to 40 year old man who was kind of like you could you could believe him as a hero, you could believe him as down in his luck. Like he had maybe not a huge amount of range in his performances, but he had a great authenticity that he could apply to a lot of different things. And then our final story for this week uh, is the story of the only good April Fool's joke. <laughs> um, so for a bit of backstory, in 2014, I believe it was Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, who was a write a director writer team who had previously done Your Next, which is a very fun sort of horror uh, from a few years earlier, released a movie called The Guest, which is, for people who haven't seen it, a real fun time. A very fun, sort of very John Carpenter, Walter uh, Hill-influenced thriller where Dan Stevens plays a guy who comes to town and uh, proceeds to ruin the lives of everyone he meets. Um, A very fun, very entertaining movie. And on April 1st, uh, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett released the soundtrack for The Guest 2, a movie that does not exist. Um, and 
what's great about it is it's a real soundtrack to a movie that does not exist, which uh, consists of all of these tracks that have been written and composed, kind of with the idea of like imagining a sequel where um, Dan Stevens' character comes back as a good guy, essentially, instead of the, the clear anti-hero slash villain that he is in the first movie. And I listened to it after initially seeing people share it and saying, actually, no, this is really good. I listened to it and I thought, man, this rules. It, like, you can totally imagine what the movie would be based on the tenor and the tone of the tracks. And I was like just really impressed with it. Kind of sad that the movie doesn't exist, even though I don't think it would ever live up to the image of the movie conjured up by the soundtrack. Um, but I just wanted to take a moment to congratulate... Uh, Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett on a genuinely good joke. <laughs> so we'll end this episode as we end all of our episodes of Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Axiom's End by Lindsay Ellis. Mm. I miss Lindsay Ellis's content a whole bunch, so I've been re-watching a lot of it, but I realised I should also support her other endeavours particularly as she's um, understandably left the content mill and Axiom's End is her debut novel, the first in a trilogy I'm not a massive sci-fi reader but I really really loved this and I think anyone who's watched Arrival and felt every fibre of their human being wibble a bit you, you need to read Axiom's End um, it follows a young woman who is the daughter of a sort of conspiracy Assange type character who is estranged from him. She and her family experience what could be an extraterrestrial event. And I'll just leave it at that because I really want you to read it. Um, but there's some really beautiful observations and it kind of scratches the surface a lot about linguistics and expression in a way that I hadn't really appreciated before. And, and, and in the ways that sci-fi, really good sci-fi does, which is makes you appreciate how expansive our experience is, not tell you exactly what's right, you know? that's axioms end by Lindsay ellis cool i am going to recommend a podcast that i've been tearing my way through over the last couple of weeks uh which is dead eyes um by connor ratliff connor ratliff for people who aren't familiar is an actor and improviser based out of new york who in 2000 auditioned for a role in hbo's band of brothers was cast in the role in a very minor small role but then was fired at the last minute because uh, Tom Hanks looked at his rehearsal footage and said that he had dead eyes. And the podcast, as is described by someone in an early episode, is essentially um, serial about something inconsequential, which is uh, Conor Ratliff trying to investigate the truth behind this claim. Was he truly fired for this reason? Um, but then it kind of morphing into a broader project about failure um as it relates to working in the entertainment industry so he goes around he interviews various people some of whom he has direct connections with through his various jobs in the entertainment industry some of whom are just you know people who um are fans of the show or who have some connection to band of brothers and they end up having these really interesting conversations about 
the the nature of failure and it all culminates with uh, a finale which i won't spoil but um was talked about a lot in the press when it happened which is why i decided to start watching the show uh, start listening to the show and i have found it to be just like such a fun and hopeful listen in the the way in which it is about someone turning a fairly negative experience in their life into something positive and creative and uh conor atliff is a very funny very winning person who it's really fun to hear talk to and to see him kind of like go through all of these conversations with all these various people and yeah it's just it's a really it's a really really good time uh i think it's there's only like 32 episodes or something over the course of three seasons and it is well worth checking out wherever you get podcasts so that is a uh, dead eyes by connor ratliff if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Player FM, all the usual places. Uh, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.